Hey podcast friends, Chaz here. We've got a great episode in store for you today um, because we have a conversation between Scott and his friend Beverly Gaventa. If you're not familiar with Beverly Gaventa, she's the Distinguished Professor of New Testament at Baylor University. Before she was at Baylor, she taught at Princeton Theological Seminary for 21 years. She's the author of numerous outstanding books such as When in Romans, which is her most recent book and uh, the center of our conversation conversation today. Uh, Her other books include Our Mother St. Paul, From Darkness to Light, and many others. You're going to enjoy Scott's conversation with Dr. Gaventa, but before we get there, I wanted to remind you that if you ever have any questions about seminary, want help discerning if seminary is for you, or are interested just to learn more about how Northern Seminary equips the church to change the world, then check us out at our website at seminary.edu. Again, that's seminary.edu. You could also send us an email at info at seminary.edu, and we would love to help you in any way that we can in this process. Well, without further ado, here's our episode for this week. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight. The conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, Scott has a conversation with Beverly Gaventa on her new book, When in Romans. Here at Kingdom Roots Podcast, we are delighted today to have a guest from Baylor University, Dr. Beverly Gaventa, author of a number of books, but let me explain just a little bit, and then we're going to interview Beverly about her new project on the Apostle Paul in the Book of Romans. When I was uh, about 20 years ago, I was working on conversion, and one of my favorite books to read on conversion was a book by Beverly Gaventa, and at that time I realized that we had some similar or common interests in early Christian conversion. And then uh One of my all-time favorite books that I read on the Apostle Paul, and sometimes I forget the title of this, so Beverly may have to correct me, but it's um, Our Mother St. Paul, I believe. That's correct. It's a beautiful book uh, that shows Paul's image of his pastoral work and his apostolic work as taking part in having a motherly relationship with his churches and with individuals. And all of this now to say that uh, Beverly has a brand new book on on the Book of Romans with the wonderful title, and my students love this title, Beverly, called When in Romans. And it's all about lingering in Romans. And Beverly, I wonder if you could explain to us a little bit of how you became interested in the Apostle Paul and in particular, how you became interested in Paul as a pastor and theologian. Okay. Uh, Well, first, let me say how pleased I am to have this conversation. I I appreciate the opportunity. If anyone had told the 21-year-old Beverly that she would end up uh, interested in the Apostle Paul, she would have laughed. Um, I was an undergraduate religion major, and the classes I liked least were the ones in Bible. Um, But when I went to seminary, I had early on a class with J. Lewis Martin on uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, 
And that's sort of the beginning and the end of the story. Um, I became fascinated by, uh, by Paul in particular. Um, I think mostly at that stage, it was fascination with the ideas, with the conversations, with his uh, communities, um, with the way he makes arguments, which still absorbs me when it isn't driving me slightly daft. <laughs> and um, I, I, be, I began to see the very, uh, the way in which his pragmatic concerns about his churches, as well as his theological concerns, were uh, deeply integrated. Um, so that's, that's been the, one of the major stories of my work life. What do you think shaped your interest and in, in seeing Paul as a mother, as a mother figure in his relationship to other Christians and to churches and to those around him? That's one of those things that uh, seemed like an accident almost at the time. Now, being a Presbyterian, I would have to call it providence. <laughs> uh, that all started one day when Phyllis Tribble was lecturing at Columbia Seminary. And I don't even remember what, I'm, I'm sorry to say, what it was. She was in the, the book back afterward, and she made some comment about how, well, you wouldn't find much by way of feminine or maternal imagery in the New Testament Certainly not in Paul. That's the way I recall it. And I worked quite a lot on Galatians, and suddenly I thought, huh, there's that odd passage in Galatians 4, and that set me off uh, on what became quite an involved uh, exploration of what it is Paul is up to. And I started looking around in commentaries and couldn't find anybody who talked about feminine imagery. Uh, or maternal imagery in Paul. Uh, subsequently, I found that uh, some of the some of our predecessors, some of the church fathers, noticed this language, but by and large, we weren't talking about it. So it was it was one of those wonderful uh, throwaway lines by somebody else that started me off on that path. And it was the title of that book that uh, that generated an interest in me in your book. Uh, because I was asked to speak to a very large gathering of women who were interested in ministry, but who came from pretty conservative contexts and just weren't all that convinced that women ought to be leaders in churches, but some of them were. And I was asked to speak to this audience, and I really thought this is, this is going to be odd for me. I don't know what to say, because the evangelical world tends to be pretty male, and all of a sudden, I'm going to be the outnumbered one, and I, I, need to, I need to be ready, and I need to experience this. Well, I go to this big conference in Orlando, and I, I said, I'm going to do something really foolish here. I'm going to talk about Paul as a woman, or Paul in his maternal instincts. And Beverly, the people loved it, and I told them several times, you know, I got almost all these ideas from Beverly Gaventa's book. So I know uh, some of the people got interested in your work at that time. So thanks for that uh, for that work. But here here's the thing, Beverly, the Book of Romans, I have discovered among my seminary students, um, is a little bit daunting, 
And I found college students in teaching for 17 years uh, less than awestruck by the Apostle Paul and most especially less than awestruck by the Book of Romans. So I am I am really thrilled uh, to learn that you are writing on Romans and that you have written this new book on Romans. Uh, What I've learned from your work in the past, especially as I saw it in the book of Acts, is that you write very fine commentaries that are clear as a bell and don't parade how much you know, but are judicious and wise. And so I'm really excited about your work on Romans. And I'm I really enjoyed this new book of yours. Um, I, I sometimes refer to it, I think, by a pre uh, a, a title that it had for a while, lingering in Romans. Uh, but would you give us uh, some highlights of this new book that you have on Romans, uh, which is called When in Romans? Sure, thank you. Um, well, the title comes out of experiences that I've had that are very much like your own with uh, seminary students and pastors who find Romans, who find Paul in general, and Romans in particular, extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. The tendency is either to try to reduce it to some small thing that we can um, manipulate, or to treat it abstractly as a treatise on faith, let's say, or a treatise on God and Israel or something else. There are lots mm-hmm. of different proposals. Mm-hmm. But what I wanted to do, what, what happens in, in, the short, in the long run for a lot of people, especially pastors, is uh, they kind of give up. You know, we sort of yep. I talk about it at the beginning of the book as uh, we, we do the highlights tour. You know, we get on the on-off bus and we see the big sites, but we don't, we don't stick around. Mm-hmm. So I, I think of this book as an invitation for people to to dig in a little deeper. Um, so that one of the things that I do in the beginning is well, each chapter is a, um, a sort of an admonition that follows on when in Romans. And the first one, which is probably the, the one that sets the tone for the whole book, is consider the horizon. That is to say, what is Uh, Paul's letter about. Um, Many of us, myself included, were brought up with the notion that it's about personal salvation, my relationship to God. And as you know uh, very well, in the last several decades, New Testament scholars have pushed that in the direction of um, the, the community's relationship to God whether that community is defined as Israel or in some cases as the church or by some people as uh, the Gentile world and its relation to God. And what I want to say is I think that the horizon, I think the letter incorporates both of those things, but I think the, the letter is larger still in that it encompasses all of creation um, and is a, has a, a, a cosmic horizon. Uh, I, I'd like to just kind of jump in a little bit on that before you get to your second uh, major theme. And that is, I, I totally agree with you that scholarship has really pushed us to see a bigger than me 
uh, understanding of what, uh, let's say, the work of Christ is in the New Testament. Now, I get, whenever I bring this up, I get people who say to me, well, you're diminishing the, the importance of individuals and individual salvation and the personal. How, how do you respond when people say that? Because I'm not trying to do that, but uh, people who grow up thinking that this is exclusively about the individual wonder at times if this isn't the denial of the individual when we talk about the corporate or Israel or the church or the Gentile world. One way of thinking about that, and I've actually tried this on a, a couple of occasions, is asking, then what does that mean about the person who, for whatever reason, is not able to respond uh, to God? Um, and I, I think from a pastoral point of view, that's a key way to, to frame the question. But I would say it doesn't at all deny the relationship between God and the individual, but it does contextualize it. Yeah. Of us yeah. Apart from communities that shape us and apart from, and Paul would say, apart from a larger framework of forces, uh, powers that are, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, aligned against God. Uh, yep. That battle with God for for us. Yep. Um, and a, you know, an excellent example of that in a pastoral sense are the ways in which people are um, uh, controlled by illness, which is not to say that that's demonic at all, but controlled by some forms of illness that prevent them from having the sort of rational decision-based relationship to God that is often um, prioritized in some kinds of American Protestantism. You know, um, I have found the expansion of the gospel to the corporate, I think I can just use that expression, to be a liberating and God-exalting theme rather than a narrowing of the, I, I, I'm not afraid of that theme. It seems to me that that theme just puts all of this in context, that uh, the world does not revolve around me or around America or around the people that I know, but that, that God is, this is all of God's creation, and he has redemption and reconciliation in mind for all of creation. And, and I find that incredibly uh, joyful and liberating. I do too. Well, uh, Beverly, what is the second theme that you develop in in uh, when in Romans? Um, that is consider Abraham, and that's a a short chapter that covers an awful lot of territory. Uh, it begins with this Paul's discussion of Abraham in Romans four, but it is really focused on what he does with uh, his discussion of Israel in 9 through 11. And there, what I'm trying to show is that Israel for Paul is always two things at the same time that we tend to think of are as alternatives. One is Israel is uh, what we think of as historic people, the, the historic Israel, that is, people who are descended from Abraham, but for Paul, Israel is never a biological category. It's a category, it, it's a people God made. 
and God mm-hmm. calls into being at every point. Mm-hmm. So that when Paul, when I say consider Abraham, what I'm doing is lifting up uh, again the divine initiative in creating and sustaining and redeeming Israel. And, and uh, in modern discussions about Paul and Israel, we get into all these issues about um, election uh, and personal redemption, and then we get into debates about supersessionism. And what I found as I read your chapter, Beverly, was a, a freshness of insight. I, I, I think you always do this, and uh, you are marked by someone who doesn't toot your horn or slam on the horn too loud, uh, you disagree with people or you alter the direction of the conversation without pointing out anybody's faults too harshly. And then all of a sudden we realize we're talking about something else and we think, whoa, this is an oasis and a breath of fresh air. And the fresh air that I found was your emphasis there on God is creating this people, God and his grace. And and I wonder um, if you... Uh, you have anything to say, anything to add about grace in the book of Romans that would illuminate some of this about Israel? And maybe even we had John Barkley on on the podcast one time, and uh, he talked about his new book on Paul and the gift. So I wonder if there's anything you would say there about grace. Uh, well, I mean, one thing I would say is that anybody who hasn't read John Barkley's book needs to go do that. Um, <laughs> I agree. It's a yes, beautiful book. It is. I, I, I think what I want to say as regards Romans and grace is uh, that grace is, among other things, Paul's way of talking about this uh, totally undeserved action of God from the beginning with Israel mm-hmm. and, and now in a radically new way with um all of humanity, uh, with the entire cosmos, acting quite apart from merit, from from any sort of, um, this goes back to the question about the individual, any sort of uh, uh, capacity of, of myself or any other individual, or even a response, that the, the response that we talk about making is itself a gift. And I think that's the way Paul framed it. That's certainly the way he talks about Israel, uh, that that God gratuitously calls Israel into being and uh, and sustains Israel because God does it. You know, it's a gratuitous act. And and to move from, from Israel as a topic to grace and to God's creative act, away from who's in and who's out is once again, one of your, uh, your breaths of fresh air on the discussion. And I think, uh, you know, I commend you for, for how you generated that little, uh, that conversation in the book. So it makes me, um, it makes me lead to the, the third uh, section that you gave. I know you gave these, uh, the, these chapters originally for the Earl lectures in that at uh, Nazarene school in Kansas city. Uh, so uh, I'm wondering what that third uh, lecture or that uh, third chapter is about. Uh, sing praises. To, I don't actually have the book in front of me, but I believe it's called Sing Glory <laughs> to God or Sing Praises to God. 
Yeah, Glory, I think it is, yes. Oddly enough, with that title, that book, that chapter is on ethics. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what I try to do is reframe the question about ethics um, away from, well, I, I simply don't deal very much there with the question of what we do and don't do, or even principles. What I'm trying to, to show there is that for Paul, the question of ethics, in Romans at least, the question of human behavior is deeply connected from the beginning of the letter with what I refer to as worship, with yes. theology. Yes, so yes. The primal human problem for Paul is that when humanity does not properly acknowledge God, then humanity cannot possibly live properly. Yes. And any discussion about ethics has to start, has to be related. And so from a pastoral point of view, I find this very helpful because at least in my lifetime, you see ecclesial communities who sort of divide up over which one's interested in worship and which one's interested in ethical questions or social questions, as if you could pick one. Uh, And for Paul, these two things are deeply connected. The behavior grows out of relationship to God. It's not uh, something that is a second step. Uh, They're integrally related. Or it's not as if you can... Uh, just decide to live a good life and not acknowledge God as creator. And what, Beverly, when I read your book uh, and you were kind enough to get Baker to send me an advanced copy and I was able to read it on a couple trips where I was speaking on the airplane, I felt that that section where you turned ethics away from lists of do's and don'ts uh, lists of the people who have got these things right and the people who've got these things wrong into worship is profoundly Pauline. And, you know, it is profoundly a a characteristic of the Bible that worship of God generates a life that is in tune with God. And therefore we become, we, we start doing the things that God wants, but that worship is at the center of it. And I've read a number of things recently that have confirmed that that worship, uh, that distorted worship leads to distorted humanity, that distorted worship leads to a distortion of behaviors uh, among humans. And and I'm wondering, uh, Beverly, in all your years, you taught at um, Princeton Theological Seminary. I don't know exactly how many years. Uh, uh, huh? 21. 21 years at Princeton Seminary. In all your years of teaching seminary students, Uh, What do you think are the top elements of, let's say, uh, Romans or Paul that you have said, you know, we really need to listen to Paul on this? So I'm wondering, uh, what are the, when someone pushes back on Paul, what are the, what does your mind go to and say, but, but we need to listen to him on this and we need to listen to him on that? Well, we've already touched on a few of them. I would have to, one of them is just, I would say, the size of the gospel, mm-hmm. which to me is part of the good news of it. Um, and this relationship between worship and ethics, I think another one that's closely related for me is um, 
the relationship between practice and theology. Uh, mm-hmm. We tend to imagine that the two can be separated somehow. And I think for Paul, practical problems are theological. Mm-hmm. And theological problems are deeply practical. For example, in Romans 14, I, this comes up in the book, in the, in the chapter on welcoming one another. In Romans 14, when he's got this very practical problem about people who aren't ready to eat food with one another, apparently, because they have very different beliefs about what is appropriate to eat. And, you know, any good American pragmatist would fix that problem for you by saying, well, we'll take turns and maybe this group will eat together and that group will, you know, will have homogeneous eating units. And instead of approaching the problem as a practical problem first, Paul's response is deeply theological. You know, who's the Lord? Mm -hmm. He starts thinking. Um, So that would be one of the issues. I I think another one, to go back to the question of grace, and again, you know, John Barclay has said this more eloquently than, than any of us, Uh, To go back to the question of grace, what all of us need to understand is the the radical intention of God to have us as God's own, Mm -hmm. Uh, despite our our sinfulness. And that's a word I'm, you know, that's a word I'm not shy about using. I know it's a word that makes a lot of people terribly uncomfortable. Uh, but I think we see in Romans that sin is universal and grace is even more universal uh, mm-hmm. in, its, uh, uh, in its claims on us. Uh, Beverly, yeah. I'm, I'm uh, co-editing. I, I wrote to you about this one time. Uh, I'm co-editing a book with uh, a friend of mine on preaching Romans. It's now called Romans in the Pew. And what I found uh, when I talked to my students, and I've been at Northern five years, and right away I I would say things to people about the book of Romans, and I would even ask people, have you preached on Romans? And I I would hear people say they're afraid of it. And and I I find, I, I mean, this is, this is uh, a commendation of you. I find people like you writing books of this size, it's a small book, to be the people who who I recommend to people because here is a quick access that is really solid and clear and can give people handles on how to look at this book and how to preach Romans and how to talk about Romans. So I'm wondering if... Uh, if you would reflect with my uh, listeners here on what is it about you, what have you learned as a discipline that gives you the ability to communicate so clearly, and I and I don't mean simplistically, but I mean simply in the best sense of eloquence, is like Kent Harif, a novelist, or like Ernest Hemingway, you write sentences that just march along and are clear. And you finished, you went, she covered a lot of ground there, but that was really a good read. What have you done in your life that's helped you communicate like that to uh, to people? Oh, well, 
Well, thank you. That's that's a value for my, for me. Um, and I I don't know that, that I can answer that question about myself, except to say that I don't have a lot of patience with arguments that um, that can't be read by ordinary people. Uh, now, to be sure, there are times when there are grammatical problems in Greek that have to be discussed in ways that can't be accessed if you haven't had some Greek. I mean, there, there are comp complexities, but I, I, I guess it's just I work really hard at making it clear. Do you do you write with someone like when you gave these uh, lectures or when you wrote this book? Did you have anyone in particular in mind when you wrote, or is this just an instinct that you've developed? Well, I suppose one thing to say is these lectures were both given, you know, at the Nazarene Seminary and at Austin Seminary, and when I'm invited to uh, lecture for pastors. I really do try to put them, you know, front and center uh, in my thinking so that they can understand what I'm doing. And I have uh, my I have a couple of friends who read things for me from time to time. Uh, but a lot of it just comes out of years of teaching seminarians. You know, some of the best questions I took up in my Acts commentary came right out of students' comments and questions in classes. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I guess it's the pedagogue in me that that's so passionate about Paul that I really want people to see why Paul is interested, interesting rather than just writing for my colleagues. Well, and I think that's, I think that's uh, the uh, undeniable feature of your writing, Beverly, is that your writing is alert and aware. It's clear every now and then in a footnote, you'll shove around some information that uh, uh, ordinary people might not be too interested in, but it makes it makes everybody aware that you know what's going on in these discussions. And then you have journal articles or chapters in books where you've sorted things out a little bit more uh, um, academically. But I, I really do think that uh, you've developed a skill that I wish more of our colleagues would develop, and that is ability to write um, an academic idea for people who can use it and who need it. There's nothing worse for me than a, a book on Romans that only uh, 17 professors in the United States are going to read. Uh, 35 are going to buy it, but very few are going to read it. And I think this is a book that Paul intended for people to be able to understand, even if it's difficult for us today. And so we should be trying to imitate him and trying to communicate this for the sort of people who would hear it. I, I have one more question for you about Romans, uh, because I think you have, uh, I think you have thought about this quite a bit more than most, and that is uh, the role that Phoebe in Romans 16, 1 through 2 played what you think she was doing, uh, why you think she was chosen, uh, why she was a part of Paul's circle. I just wonder if you'd say a few things about Phoebe. Uh, and this goes back to the question, to the comment you made at the beginning about people who are sure women can't be involved in ministry. Yep. And one of the reasons that people continue to think that is because we talk about certain texts but not others. Yeah. 
Romans 16, if we started with Romans 16, that discussion might look quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my, I, I, it, I think it's pretty clear that Phoebe is the one who delivers the letter. She is the courier. Um, yes. And, and most scholars agree about that. I see very little, or if any, disagreement about that. So what does that mean? Well, presumably it also, it, it could mean that she actually is uh, also reading the letter. I mean, Paul calls her a diakonos, a deacon. He says she's been a, um, a benefactor of himself. Presumably that means she's a person of some means. There's no husband mentioned. Uh, and she's associated with this circle, uh, I think, around Corinth. Cancrea is the port city of Corinth. So Paul doesn't just pick somebody. You know, he picks somebody who he's not going to just pick anybody to take this letter. That's terribly important to him. He picks someone he thinks is capable of representing him. Um, and her name happens to be Phoebe. Now, I also think it's entirely likely, or at least possible, that she reads the letter. That's a little bit more complicated. We get into questions about literacy and such. Uh, but whether she, if, if she does read it in Rome to the various groups, then she is obviously its interpreter. Yep. You know, anytime you read a text aloud, you're telling us what's important in it, whether you mean to or not. You may be just telling us you think it's boring, but you're telling us something. Um, even if she is, even if I'm quite wrong about that, she is the one who is somehow interpreting it. When it's read, when there's a discussion, she's the one who is saying things about it. Um, and she, she can't possibly just say what Paul told her to say. Uh, she is the one who is helping people for the first time interpret it. So there may not have been many commentators on Romans of our sort who were women, but I would say its first commentator was in all likelihood a woman. Well, I, uh, Beverly, I totally agree with every point you made there. I, I believe that she was the courier. I believe that she would have uh, read the letter. And I, I sit around sometimes and wonder if she had to read this letter publicly in each of those house churches, how long it would have taken for Romans to work its way through the churches of Rome. Uh, that's an interesting question. And then, the, and I, I agree on the interpretation as well. Our, the president of our seminary graduated from Baylor uh, under Michael Parsons. Uh-huh. And so he's into uh, performance criticism, uh, particularly in the book of Acts and in other letters. But he has pressed upon me, and I've been reading in the last year, and I, when I worked on my commentary on Philemon, I worked on performance and, and, and how this would have been done. And I, and I believe that Paul and Tertius and others, Timothy probably, uh, others who were in Corinth would have been involved with Paul in the production of this letter and even, in a sense, coaching Phoebe. Phoebe would have been making her own contributions on how best to say this this sentence or how to perform these words and what to say if someone asks this and what to say if they ask that. So I, 
I think about this a, a lot. I have been thinking about this a lot in the last couple of years. And I think that that whole idea of Phoebe being the letter reader, which meant a performer rather than just someone who got up there and read it in a dull way, mm-hmm. uh, which we've all heard in church. Um, so I, I really, I, I appreciated that little section in the, in your work. And, um, and I'm looking forward to hearing more of what you had to say about Phoebe, but I, I think we've come to the end of our time and extended your, um, extended your time maybe more than you wanted, but I, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate your work over the years from conversion to Paul and now to Romans and looking forward to more of your writings over time as well. So thanks for joining us today, Beverly. We hope Scott and Beverly's conversation was helpful for you uh, in discerning how Romans took root then and how it's taking root now. If you have any interest in any of those resources that Scott and Beverly talked about in the episode, I've included links to all of those resources in the episode description, so please get a chance to to check those out, and hopefully they'll be helpful for you. Uh, Finally, I want to remind you, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't had a chance to do so. We don't want you to miss any of the episodes coming your way on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 